So we're looking at Jesus, and we're looking at the topic of controversy, either controversies in which he was embroiled or where he's giving us advice about the controversies that, that we will encounter. Uh, here in Matthew 10, he's, he's giving us advice because he's sending the disciples out on their mission, and he's guaranteeing them, he's promising them that there'll be persecution um, and trials as they go out on their mission. Uh, I think we finished at verse 25 last week. I, I just have a vague memory, or I have no memory of talking about Beelzebub. <laughs> did, we, did we do 24 through 25? Okay, well, good. I knew I didn't talk about Beelzebub. I guess we, I guess we stopped at 23 then. Uh, I stopped before the paragraph. So look at 24. Let's start there. 1024. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Yeah, I mean, if he suffered, we're going to have to suffer. Uh, we won't get off lighter than he did. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Now watch this. If they have called the master of the house, you know, the teacher, Beelzebul, sometimes it's, it's written Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Uh, there's several ways we... Um, Define Beelzebul. Um, you know of any of them? It's Satan. Uh, it goes back to a Canaanite god. Uh, it's a Canaanite term that meant Lord of the house, um, Lord of heavens. Um, when the Jews got a hold of it, they, they changed it slightly from Beelzebul to Beelzebub. So that's why sometimes it ends with a B in your text. Sometimes it ends with an L. It, it ended with an L according to the Canaanites. According to the Hebrews, it ended with a B because they were mocking it. If you put a B on the end of it, instead of Lord of the house, it becomes um, Lord of the flies. Remember Golden's book? Now, really, where the, what's behind that, and if you read... Um, Eugene Peterson's translation of this text, this is the way he says it. When, when the Hebrews referred to this person as Lord of the Flies, they were talking about the flies that hung out around a dung heap. So these are not even average flies. These are a notch below average flies. Uh, so this becomes a name for the devil. You know, we, we learn several times in the Gospels that the enemies of Jesus said that Jesus was possessed by the devil. You read that several times in the Gospels. Um, and what, what we're being told here is, again, if, if they say he's possessed of the devil, they'll say his followers that we're possessed of the devil too. Again, that's, that's a promise from Jesus. You need to be aware of it. Um, one of the interesting things to me that his enemies said he was of the devil, was it, that was an acknowledgement of the power and the miracles that Jesus was performing. They acknowledged something powerful and supernatural was going on with this person, but they just didn't want to claim him for their side, and they wanted to place him on the other side. 
So again, Jesus is saying, don't be shocked when you do the good that God is calling you to do and the people think you're of the devil. Um, again, he's making these promises to you about life, so you might as well go ahead and adjust your expectation. So if they treated him this way, how much more, are they going, how much more so are they going to treat us? So now look at verse 26. So have no fear. You're told many times in this section, have no fear. Or if you want to help it to get ingrained in your heart, translate it, don't let them intimidate you. You know, some people are so easily intimidated by life. Have no fear of them. Again, he's equipping us to send us out into the world to do ministry. So have no fear of them, these people who are calling us of the devil and, and attacking us. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim, proclaim on the housetops. Most of us think what he's getting at there is we know the truth. All creation will know the truth one day. We have bowed the knee to, the knee to Jesus Christ, but there'll come a day when all creation will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Um, so he's trying to encourage us. He's trying to encourage us. Um, we are right, and one day all creation will know that we're right. Look at 28. Here it is again. Do not fear. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Um, I don't know if you know the name Jim Elliott. Uh, his wife was Elizabeth Elliott. Uh, she was connected with one of the seminaries I attended and great, great woman of God. He was a great man of God. He died young because he went as a missionary with a few other folks to the Alka Indians. Uh, an, an, an unevangelized, uncivilized tribe in South America. He went there, I think it was like 52, 53, somewhere in the early 50s. And when his plane landed, his small plane landed with a few of his colleagues, they were going as missionaries. Um, they were all speared to death uh, by the Alka Indians. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot later, his wife, went back as a missionary to the Alka Indians. Um, one of my favorite quotations that I've committed to memory is something Jim Elliott said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get that which he cannot lose. You know, you give your life if you need to. Because we're looking at an eternal picture here, not just the next 20, 30, 40 years. So he is no fool who gives. And again, Jim Elliott didn't know he was going to die a martyr's death when he wrote that. But he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Uh, do not fear those. Do not fear. Do not be intimidated by those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Uh, I remember when I was doing youth ministry, I met a, a Presbyterian seminary student um, who was doing amazing ministry in amazing places. And I remember being shocked because this was early, early. I was... I was a college student while I was doing youth ministry. This was very early in my life, and um, I was still very early in my Christian formation. But I remember hearing him say, the worst they can do is kill me. And again, we, as Christians, we know there's a tragic aspect to death. But as Christians, death is not a tragedy. 
for us. Um, we're looking at the big picture. Sometimes we get very, we get very. I think the older we get, too. By the way, our worlds get smaller and smaller. But we look, we look at a small slice of of our life when we're looking at life in this world. Do not fear those who who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Uh, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, I hope you do know that the person in the New Testament that makes the most references to hell is Jesus. Not that, not that mean Apostle Paul. It's Jesus who makes the most references to hell. The word hell there is the word Gehenna. And if you travel to Jerusalem, you know that there still is uh, the Valley of Hinnom outside of uh, the city of Jerusalem. And um, uh, the Valley of Hinnom in Jesus' day was a place where garbage was burned. So it was a place of eternal fire, eternal smoke. Before And the reason the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, did that in the Valley of Hinnom outside of um, the old city or the city of Jerusalem was before the before the Jews made it a garbage heap, uh, it was a place of, of human sacrifice among the Canaanites. So it's just an absolute, has an absolutely horrid history. And that's why Jesus used that term, Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom. That's why he uses that as, a, as an image or a metaphor for hell. Um, it, as an aside, by the way, if you go there today, Hinnom is a beautiful valley. Um, but every time... My, some of you know my tour guide I've worked with for 20 years, David Aarons. I've heard his jokes for 20 years. <laughs> Every time we drive through Hinnom, when we come out of the, come past the Valley of Hinnom, he always tells us to count to see if we lost anybody <laughs> um, as we drove through hell. But Jesus is painting a very stark picture there as to what life separated from God looks like. Um, you're probably not surprised. My favorite author outside the Bible on hell is C.S. Lewis. He says some really significant things, such as, the door to hell is locked from the, from the inside. And what he means by that is people who go to hell choose that. You know, if you choose, if you want God to leave you alone, not bother your life, not bother your lifestyle, at some point, well, God will say, you can have your way. And that's called eternal separation from God, which is hell. And we can't imagine how bad, how bad that is. People who go to hell, is not, they're not sent there by God. They choose it. People who go to hell would be absolutely miserable in heaven because people who go to hell are those who don't want to be bothered by God. They don't want God to, you know... Harsh their buzz, as young people say. They don't want God to um, hinder their choices in life or their lifestyle. And that's why eventually God will say, you can have what you want. And again, probably my favorite C.S. Lewis quote of all time is something George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis's mentor, uh, is, is portrayed as saying in that fantasy, The Great Divorce. And he says this, there are really only two types of people in the world those that say to God, thy will be done. 
and those to whom God will eventually say, Thy will be done. What you want. Yeah, people who are in hell are those who don't want God to bother them. You know, people who go to hell are people who don't enjoy worshiping God. Yeah, Hitler would be absolutely miserable in hell. I mean, in heaven. Um, because if, he, if, if Hitler went to heaven, he couldn't be the center of the universe. Again, God, God has great respect for human freedom. God has great respect for humans. And that's why he'll let you ultimately choose. Now, he'll bother you till you leave this world. He'll put preachers and Christians and Bibles, and he will come after you in so many ways as long as you're in this world. But eventually, he'll let you have what you want. For me, the doctrine of hell, as sad as it is, has the full warrant of Scripture. And I would even add, as would C.S. Lewis, the full warrant of logic and philosophy. I mean, you can't even love unless not loving is an option. You can't receive, you can't love God unless not loving God is an option. God has a great respect for us. So if you believe that, if you want that, hell is the logical conclusion. God will finally say to you, Thy will be done. If you don't want God to bother you in this life, He won't bother you in eternity either. And we call that separation hell. Anyway, one thing I want to read to you. Got a couple of interesting things. I, I don't usually bring anything but my Bible in here. Um, but two things I'm, I'm going to give you today. Here when he says, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. You know, as Christians, we have a long history of martyrs, people who died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of us won't even get up on a Sunday morning and go to church. But we have a long history of people who have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, there used to be a time among Protestants, if I, if I, 200 years ago, if I had gone into a Protestant home, I would have found a Bible. I would have found the works of Josephus. We've mentioned that a few times. I would have found um, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And the other book that I would have found in almost all Protestant homes is Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know if you've heard that. It's an amazing book. Um, it was written during the Reformation period. The subtitle, The History of the Lives, Sufferings, and Triumphant Deaths of the Early Christians and Protestant Martyrs. Um, it was written after the time of um, Queen Mary, who we Protestants call what? Bloody Mary. After, after Henry VIII and Edward VI, when the Protestant Reformation was taking hold in England, uh, Edward, if he had lived longer, that, I'd love to have seen what would have happened. But Edward VI died at age 14. He was succeeded by Mary, who um, hated Protestants. I'm glad the world has changed a lot, and we don't do much of this anymore. She was a devout Catholic. She tried to take the cat. She tried to take England back uh, to Rome, um, and part of in the 16th century, part of the way she did that was she she killed 250 Protestants leaders, Protestant leaders. That's why we Protestants call her Bloody Mary. Anyway, this book came out of it. John Rogers, I, I know I've mentioned this in sermons. Um, John Rogers was one of those early Protestants that got killed. 
He died in February 1555. Uh, he was burned in Smittles, which was where they burned people right outside of London. He was the first Protestant leader that was burned by Bloody Mary during her reign. Um, he was a Cambridge scholar. What was going on at that point? Oxford leaned toward Rome. Cambridge leaned toward the Reformation. So a lot of the great early Protestants were scholars out of Cambridge. John Rogers was one of those great early scholars. Um, William Tyndale, you may have heard that name. William Tyndale helped create the first English translation of the Bible. That was part of what the established church resisted during the Protestant Reformation. We thought it was a good idea for people to be able to read the scriptures in their language. Uh, you don't have to know Latin to know the scriptures. Well, Tyndale and John Rogers worked on that first Bible, one of the first Bibles. It, it was it's called the, the Matthew Bible. It predates King James by 70 years. Uh, predates King James by 70 years. Uh, anyway, William Tyndale did most of the New Testament translation. Uh, William Coverdale, Coverdale did the Psalms which are still in the Book of Common Prayer, his translation of the Psalms. John Rogers translated much of what became the Old Testament. Um, anyway, so he was a great biblical scholar, knew the languages, tried to help get the Bible into English, um, and became the first martyr under, under, under Mary. Uh, the reason I like to remind you of John Rogers is, you know, my love for genealogy. I'm a direct descendant of John Rogers. In my study, I have a print... A wood, a wood carving of John Rogers burning on the cross, burning on the stake outside of Smittles. Yeah, you know what? I think I'm having a tough day. I just go look at that. Um, it's always a matter of perspective. Anyway, I just want to read you this one paragraph of John Rogers going to the, to the stake from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, you may go get your copy. It's still in print. When the time, he's been in prison, he's been arrested, he's been in prison for a long time. When the time came that he should be brought out of New, Newgate Prison to Smithfield, Smittles, the place of his execution, Mr. Woodroof, one of the sheriffs, first came to Mr. Rogers and asked him if he would revoke his abominable doctrine, salvation by faith. And the, and the Reformation, if he would revoke his abominable doctrine and the evil opinion of the sacrament of the altar, he rejected transubstantiation, that the bread literally became the body and blood. Mr. Rogers answered, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. My family's always been a little stubborn. Um, that which I preach, I will seal with my blood. Then Mr. Woodruff said, thou art, inherit, thou, art, thou art an heretic. That shall be known, quoted Rogers, at the day of judgment. We'll see who's right at the day of judgment. Well, said Mr. Woodruff, I will never pray for thee, but I will pray for you, said Rogers. And so it was brought the same day, the 4th of February. Um, I always know it's the 4th of February. The 4th of February by the sheriffs towards Smittles sang, sang the Psalm Miserere as he sang Psalm 51 as he goes. Uh, so that's why it's good to memorize Scripture. You don't always have a Bible 
accessible. So he's quoting Psalm 51 as he's being led to the stake. Uh, by the way, all the people wonderfully rejoicing at his constancy. Yeah, that was one of the main entertainments back in those days. We'll see some executed. But they were, they were impressed by his stubbornness or his faithfulness um, with great praises and thanks to God for the same. And there in the presence of Mr. Rochester, the comptroller of the Queen's household, Sir Richard Southwell, both the sheriffs, and a great number of people, he was burnt to ashes, washing his hands in the flame as he was burning. A little before his burning, his pardon was brought. If he would have recanted, but he utterly refused it. He was the first martyr of all the blessed com company that suffered in Queen Mary's time that gave the first adventure uh, that gave the first adventure upon the fire it's an adventure it's, it's a privilege to suffer and die for Christ he was the first martyr of all the blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time that gave the first adventure upon the fire now listen to this his wife and children being 11 in number so it's not really that special to be a descendant of this man. His wife and children being 11 in number, 10 able to go to the burning, one suckling at his mother's breast, met him by the way as he went to Smithfield, Smittles. This sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood could nothing more move him but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense of the gospel of Christ. Um, you see why this book used to be on all Protestant shelves? It, it starts with biblical Protestants and comes up through the Reformation. So, do not fear those who kill the body, but do not kill the soul. You know, you want to make sure your soul's right even if you have to give up your body. Now, here comes another quotation from Jesus. And I'm giving you a gift with this one, too. Are not two sparrows, or as Eugene Peterson translates it rather loosely, a pet canary? I'm not sure he gets that. Are sparrows and canaries, they're not the same thing, are they? Okay. Uh, I didn't think they were. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, which is the lowest denomination of money in Jesus' world, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So God notices the most intimate, small details of creation in our lives. He notices when a sparrow dies. Um, verse 30 but even the hairs of your head are numbered. That's easier for some than others. Um, but you hear what's being said here. Jesus is saying, God the Father intimately knows the simplest details of our lives. You know, as I get older, the more I, the more I appreciate the doctrine that what the creeds call the, that comfortable doctrine um, of the sovereignty of God. Um, now again, don't misuse the sovereignty of God. God notices when the sparrow falls, even if an evil person kills the sparrow. Sometimes when people think about the sovereignty, the overruling of God in life, they make the mistake of speaking as if 
everything that happens in this world is of God. God overrules. God's sovereignty will accomplish what God wants to accomplish. God will get us home before the dark. God will make sure his purposes are worked out in our life. God will make sure that we, we become Christ-like, if that's our deepest desire. So the sovereignty of God is amazing. God will work with all the messes we make to bring about God's good for us. That doesn't mean everything happens is God. So that's why I'm very careful to even say God's in control. Now, he is ultimately overriding. He superintends everything. But you need to make sure nobody ever hears you saying that everything happens is the will of God. You know, um, you know if, if a drunk driver kills a child, that's not God's will. Now, God will overrule. God will intervene. God would work it out. God will take the messes that we make and bring out good. Because again, sin, flesh, and the devil is at work in the world. So we all know sin, flesh, and the devil is work in the world. So don't turn right around and act like that everything that happens is the will of God. The sovereignty of God just teaches me. Well, I'll quote him again. C.S. Lewis says, four-fifths of the pain that we suffer in this world is because of what we do to each other. Don't blame God for that one. Um, but God will intervene. God will overrule. God will step in. God, God's sovereignty over, over arches all of this. So I deeply and desperately believe in the sovereignty of God. But don't believe in the sovereignty of God that you start attributing to God what should only be attributed to the devil. Don't lay evil at God's doorstep. So just be a little comfort, be a little... Be, be, just pay attention to the cliches you use. Now, the sovereignty of God. He watches the sparrows. He knows what happens. Some evil person might shoot the sparrow, but God notices and God's going to take care of the sparrow. God's going to work it out. That's the sovereignty of God. You know, that's why, again, you can burn me at the stake, and I'm not going to say that's the will of God, but God will overrule that. Because, again, God's looking at the big picture. Not just my pain in the moment or my, my joy in the moment. So I've given you what I think may be my favorite quotation outside the Bible concerning the sovereignty of God by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That's what I passed out to you. And I've known this quotation for decades, but the older I get, the more it becomes important to me. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, if you don't know him, by the way, uh, he, he, was probably the, he was called the Prince of Preachers. In London, in the, in the 19th century, the, the mid to late 1800s, his stuff is still in print. His devotional, daily devotional for morning and evening, still in print. I don't know of anyone who ever had the command of the English language like Charles Haddon Spurgeon did. Um, he grew the biggest church in London in his day. Um, yeah, his stuff still, when I read it, I'm blessed by it. Here's one of his quotations. God is too good to be unkind. And he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. What does that mean when we can't trace? This is 19th century. What does it mean when we can't trace his hand? We trust his heart. Yeah, you got it. When you can't see what he's doing, why he's allowing it, how he's working it out, when you can't see the details, when you don't know what 
his end game is. Trust his heart. So yeah, that comes to me a lot when I can't trace his hand. I trust his heart. Um, yeah, so back to Jesus. I'm giving you that as a gift. Stick that in your Bible. So back to Jesus. You know, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So one sparrow would be half a penny. Are not, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. So verse 31 again, fear not. Therefore you are of more value you're the people of more value. You are of more value than the sparrows. You should take some comfort in that. But then he kind of concludes what we call a paragraph by saying, so everyone who acknowledges, trusts, or believes in me before men. Can't be a secret service here. Everyone who acknowledges, believes, trusts me before men. I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And then notice where he goes to from here. He's giving you that warning. Warning, Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace, on, peace to the earth. He's come so far in history. He's come to bring peace to our hearts. But don't confuse that. He has not come to bring peace on earth in this age. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword, conflict, controversy, division. Yeah, but you haven't heard me sermons preached on this one. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus is quoting, we think, the prophet Micah, chapter 7, verse 6 here. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's not an issue of loving your family less is an issue of loving him more. So, um, yeah, the Bible's clear. We take care of family. But if you love them more than you love Jesus, there, there's an issue. And then in verse um, 38 comes the first mention of something. And whoever does not take his cross. This is early in the Gospel of John. He's talked about you know, the benefit of suffering. He's talked about the benefit of self-denial. This is the first time he mentions cross in the gospel. Now, that world would have known the cross because the Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it as a very painful, agonizing means of execution that could put the criminal on display to be a deterrent to anyone who'd resist their power. So when Jesus knows what he's doing here, he's connecting, following him, he's connecting discipleship to taking up a cross. If you, in the first century, were standing anywhere in the Roman world and you saw someone carrying a cross, why can you um, conclude from that? Yeah. They're being killed. They're, they're going to their death. We have to kill self-will. We have to let God in us kill self-will. Kill that ego. Kill 
that sense of self-sufficiency, all, all this idolatry of self, we've got to somehow let God in Christ kill that. We've got to get that executed. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Yeah, when you, come to, when you find your life by coming to Christ, then you realize your life is all about giving yourself away. Or as Oswald Chambers says, and my utmost for his highest, we are to become broken bread and poured out wine for the sake of the world. We're not to just be gluttons on the bread and the wine. We're to become broken bread and poured out wine for the sake of the world as we follow Christ. So when we find what life is all about, then we learn that we need to lose it. We need to give it away, become broken bread, poured out wine. Let's wrap up chapter 10 because I've got to do that. Uh, Whoever receives you receives me. He dwells in us. So when people receive us, they're receiving him. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. If you receive the Son, uh, you're receiving the Father. If, and vice versa, if you receive the Father, you should receive the Son. Um, the Son reveals the Father. The one who receives a prophet because his prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Save a discussion for reward for later. None of us should be very dogmatic about what these rewards are, except to this extent. I know that our heavenly spiritual rewards will in no way look like what we think rewards are in this world. I mean, if you want to reward me in this world, you know, contribute to my pension fund. That'll reward me in this world. You know, in this world, rewards look at money and material things. When the Bible talks about rewards, um, it's, it's got to be something different. It's got to be something different. Um, so I, I'm very undogmatic about what those rewards. I mean, the greatest rewards is living in the presence of Christ, living in the presence of Christ eternally. Maybe some of our individual rewards is we'll get to maybe meet and live eternally with people for the first time that we knew we helped influence them for Christ, you may meet, you may meet some people there that are there because of you. So we don't know what those rewards are. Hold those sort of loosely. But um, we're promised rewards. But then notice, conclude verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones... Pay attention to the little things, like the sparrow, the hairs on your head. God pays attention to the little things. And whoever gives one of these little ones, um, and I'll talk about the little ones in a moment, one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Again, back to reward. So he's just talking about giving a cup of, cup of water, um, cold water. That's important in the Middle East. He's talking about giving a cup of cold water to these little ones. You won't lose your, you won't, you won't lose your rewards. That's a little thing. It, it could be children. You know, but I think you can parse, parse it on out. Children, vulnerable, those who aren't able to return the favor. When you just give a cup of cold water to these people, 
That's a little thing, but God pays attention to those little things, so, so we should too. Now, the interesting thing about the text, and whoever, and again, you've got to translate the Greek, and there's always a few ways you can do that. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because his disciple... You, now, the disciple here is either giving the cup of cold water, or you can actually translate, and whoever gives one of these little ones who is a disciple... A cup of cold water will get his reward. So even the little ones could be a child, could be someone vulnerable, someone that can't return the favor, could be someone new in the faith who is a disciple, but they're just starting out. So, um, yeah, just sometimes we like to pay attention to the big things, but God pays attention to the little things. So when I look at all that Jesus says in verse, in chapter 10, there's a couple big things I don't want you to lose. Um, unqualified allegiance to Jesus Christ. Yeah, don't love your family less. Don't love your neighbors less. Just make sure you love him more. Unqualified allegiance to Jesus Christ. Um, And the other thing that I learned here, or I'm reminded of here, uh, particularly when I think about Christian martyrs who have given their life for Jesus Christ, like my great, don't have any numbers back. I've got it written down. Grandfather John Rogers. Um, we, we've got to love our enemies. And actually the way I say we love our enemies, we've got to out-love them. The older I get, the more I'm convinced of that. So whoever your enemies are, out-love them. You know, shock them. Like, like John Rogers. The guy says, I won't pray for you. Well, John Rogers says, I'll pray for you. As he's being led to the cross, not cross, to the stake to be burned. Yeah, outlove you. Don't just love your enemies, outlove them. Make sure that they see more love coming from you than you see coming from them. That's a great Christian witness. I mean, if you can be led to be burned at the stake, outloving your enemies. Um, you know, that's, that's when you don't show the fear. That's when you don't let them intimidate you. That's when you'll give a cup of cold water. Outlove your enemies. Anyway, chapter 10 is amazing. It's always good to talk about Jesus. Comments, reflections, um, questions. We're, at, we're finished. Sort of like Christ said, forgive them, Father, for they know. Yeah, it's always good to remember Jesus. Yeah, outlove your enemies, which he did. Oh, yeah. It's a comma. Yeah, and you know, if you look at the hymnal we Methodists produced, and this is one of our lowest points, our 1964 hymnal, they're stacked up, by the way, churches never know what to do with old hymnals. The 1964 hymnal stacked up in the hall, in the classroom across the hall. Look at it and try to find hymns on heaven. It's hard to do. I think there's two. Now, if you go to my study and look at hymnals from the mid-1800s, lots of hymns on heaven. Because everybody then saw people die on a regular basis. They didn't live forever, and they didn't die in hospitals, and they didn't get whisked away and vanished by funeral directors. It happened in your home. Yeah, I mean, and I think actually even in our hymnal from 1991, it's hard to believe how long ago that was, we added a bunch more hymns about heaven in 1991. Um, yeah, we've kind of recaptured that. 1964, we were, 
you know, that was pie. Let me quote C.S. Lewis one more time. People said, told us that was pie in the sky theology. You're so heavenly minded, you know earthly good. Well, the way C.S. Lewis addressed that was, well, either there's pie in the sky or there's not. If there is, you need to pay some attention to it. And the Christian faith, that doctrine of heaven is woven throughout. And that doctrine of heaven should be woven throughout our life. But, you know, death is, we hide from death, we don't see it. I remember, I'm going to gross some of you out. I remember my great-grandfather, who was born in 1879, lived to be 101, is the reason I remember him. I remember him talking about family dying at home, which grossed me out a little bit when I was a kid. But when they would die at home, they would die in bed, the family would put quarters on their eyes, Liz, to make them shut. We used to see death. Now it's this vanishing. People go away. And yet we wonder why people don't think about the next world. They better. They should. I mean, that, that, that is woven. Yeah, it, it is a comment. It's not a period. But I hear devout Christians who talk about it as if it's a period. Um, anything else? Yeah, Kathy. Trust the Father's heart. Trust the Father's heart. And there's nothing that's insignificant in our lives that's insignificant to Him. I've heard people tell me that they don't even pray for themselves. And I'm the other extreme because I know the Father's heart. I pray for everything. I mean, you know, if I'm running late for a meeting and I can't find a parking space, I'll pray for a parking space. Now, I know God might answer by saying you should have started earlier. <laughs> but I will pray for a parking space. You know, I mean, God, God wants to hear from us more than we want to pray. There's nothing insignificant uh, to the Father. That's why if you can't trace His hand, trust His heart. Trust His heart. And, you know, I mean, that's, there's a lot about life that confuses me. There's a lot about life I don't understand. But I'm not going to waver on that one. I mean, I, I, I trust the Father's heart. There's a cross in the center of the Father's heart if you want to know how much He loves you. So that's why it's patently unchristian to say, well, I think I should just pray for others. I don't pray for myself. 
Don't stop praying. Again, it's not, you know, don't stop praying for them, you know, but you can pray for yourself too. Yeah. It's an act of love. Let's pray together. I need to get y'all out of here. Father's privileged to call you Father. And God, when we can't understand life, may we trust your fatherly heart toward each one of us. And God, we thank you that we've been given promises. Uh, Even though we've been promised persecution, we've been promised conflict and division, we've been promised your fatherly love and sovereignty over our lives. Keep us eternally grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.